Hi there. A quick note to let you know that we'd love to have you join our expert tour guides in the streets of New York on one of our Bowery Boys walks. Our licensed New York City tour guides lead small groups on walks that we've developed especially for our Bowery Boys listeners. Tours of Gilded Age mansions, Jane Jacobs versus Robert Moses, Greenwich Village, Historic Harlem, and so much more. Head to BoweryBoysWalks.com to join the fun. In the fall of 1967, you could actually walk through the area of Manhattan called the East Village and experience one or maybe all of the following things. You could see the new musical Hair at the Public Theater, then stumble out and twirl the Astor Place Cube in the night air, walk east and stand in line on St. Mark's Place to luxuriate in the psychedelic light shows at the Electric Circus, and enjoy the music of the Blue Oyster Cult. Then pick up an egg cream at Gem Spa, or maybe a joint, then float through a haze toward the Peaside Bookstore at Avenue A, finally landing in Tompkins Square Park with its kaleidoscopic leaves, hurling yourself past protesters leading anti-war chants to arrive at a drug-fueled bee-in. But this isn't just a story about hippies and free love and classic rock. This is also about the communities that were already on these blocks when the Bohemians arrived, and long before the name East Village was invented. My grandfather, Volodymyr Domerkwal, was a Ukrainian immigrant that arrived in the States in the late 1940s. He made his way to the New York area in the early 50s, and he found that this area of the village was a very a mixed, eclectic melting pot of Germans, Irish, and, and Ukrainians. Veselka means rainbow in Ukrainian. Mm-hmm. Happy wedding day in a variety of different Slovak languages. I believe that my grandfather named it Veselka because at the end of a rainbow, what do you typically find? A pot of gold. The Bowery Boys episode 416, Creating the East Village. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young with the first of a two-part series on the history of the East Village, a dynamic center for music, theater, art, and nightlife for almost 70 years. This place has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people over the decades. Alternative boundary-pushing culture, or endless partying on the weekends, or activism and protest, or gentrification and high rents. Of course, before the mid-1950s, the East Village didn't exist at all. The borders of today's East Village are essentially defined by decisions made by the city in the mid-20th century. Its northern border is 14th Street, separating the East Village from the site of New York's old gas house district, which was demolished in the 1940s to make way for the supersized residential development Stuyvesant Town. Its eastern front is the FDR Drive and the waterfront East River Park, which, as of this recording, is being completely rebuilt from scratch. The southern border of the East Village is Houston Street, named for the founding father William Houston, the Georgia delegate to the Constitutional Convention who married into New York wealth and got a street name out of it. This once modest street, named for the Georgian, was substantially widened in the mid-1930s as part of the construction of the subway's 6th Avenue line, that's today's B, D, and F trains. And finally, the western border of the East Village is 3rd Avenue and the Bowery, the two avenues colliding around the spot of Cooper Union, the vaunted educational institution opened by Peter Cooper in the year 1859 and most famous as the place where Abraham Lincoln gave a speech the following year which launched his national political ambitions. Immediately to the north of the college is a plaza called Astor Place and to its south, Cooper Square. And one particular street that emerges from this intersection, from these plazas, East 8th Street, better known as St. Mark's Place, will be central to our story today. Now to situate even more 
Within the boundaries of the East Village are North-South Avenues, 3rd, 2nd, and 1st Avenues, then Avenue A, B, C, and D. Now, depending on the context, these lettered avenues are often referred to as Alphabet City and also commonly known as Loisida, the Puerto Rican variation of the original neighborhood's name, which came into usage in the 1970s. So that is a lengthy situation, but if we're being honest, and we are, the words East Village mean nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's made up. We have all collectively decided at some point in the 60s, most of us, to call this place East Village. In the early days of New York history, this area was never considered a part of Greenwich Village, an actual village that developed west of here in the 17th century. However, there was another village here in the olden days called Bowery Village, which was mostly an extension of the estate of Peter Stuyvesant, the director general of New Amsterdam and his colonial and old New York descendants. If that sounds somewhat irrelevant to a story which will soon include mentions of Andy Warhol and lots of drugs, well, let me turn your attention to his old church, St. Mark's in the Bowery, which still exists today on 2nd Avenue and will play a critical role in the development of the quote-unquote East Village. By the mid-19th century, the old Stuyvesant farm had been chopped up into city blocks and developed into housing stock for hundreds of thousands of newly arriving immigrants, in particular German immigrants who enlivened the East Side, as it was known, with their culture, religion, and architecture. It was known as Kleindeutschland. In its day, the largest concentration of German people outside of Germany itself. Today, you can walk down almost any street here and see some evidence of German heritage, former social clubs, churches, and even apartment buildings. But it's not all German. You'll also find a bit of Irish down here, too, particularly on East 7th Street with the historic McSorley's Old Ale House, which opened probably in 1854. By the late 19th century, with the city's incredible growth northward, two elevated train lines would soon cut through this area. The 3rd Avenue elevated, which ran up the Bowery and 3rd Avenue, and the 2nd Avenue elevated, which, in this neighborhood, not to be confusing, actually ran up 1st Avenue. And thus, with the city moving well northward by this time, it was no longer the east side, it was the lower east side. In the early 20th century, the Germans would migrate out of the neighborhood, and in their place, very often in the same housing, came new immigrants from Eastern Europe. In particular, the new Eastern European Jewish residents would make a strong cultural impact to the neighborhood, not only in its delicatessens and synagogues, but in its theaters. Second Avenue would become the heart of the Yiddish theater scene, with new stages built up and down the avenue. It was known as the Jewish Rialto, and by 1920, there were almost two dozen theaters that specialized in productions performed in Yiddish. But this was a fleeting cultural moment in New York. About a decade later, when many Jewish residents of the Lower East Side began moving away to other neighborhoods, the Jewish Rialto would fade away. But there's still so much more theater history to come in this story. For many of these immigrant groups, the Lower East Side was a place you moved from, that you got out of, a vestige of an old life and the old world. Just as immigrants left their home countries for better opportunities in the United States, their children in subsequent decades left the old tenement quarters here for better opportunities in other parts of the city, especially as improved transportation options like that new subway system and a maze of new highways allowed people to move to other boroughs and beyond. As you can imagine, the housing was famously bad in the Lower East Side. In 1935, one of the first public low-income housing projects in the nation was constructed on East 3rd Street and Avenue A, called, appropriately, the First Houses. 
but they would be dwarfed in size by the late 1940s by massive public housing developments along Avenue D on that east side of the neighborhood, the eastern edge of today's East Village. Developments named for the social activists Jacob Rees and Lillian Wald of the Henry Street Settlement. Even still, by the mid-20th century, the Lower East Side remained a place for newer ethnic enclaves to create a cultural foothold. Such was the case for a small enclave that first appeared in the late 19th century and experienced an interesting resurgence in the 1950s. Ukrainians have been immigrating to the United States since the 1870s, when the country was split between Russian and Austro-Hungarian empires. Ellis Island records might list them as Polish or Russian, but their Ukrainian heritage united them in that common destination for poor European immigrants, the Lower East Side but concentrated, in this case, on East 7th Street in the halo of St. George Ukrainian Catholic Church. The Grand St. George's, which stands here today, was built in the late 1970s, but Ukrainians have worshipped in prior buildings here since the early 20th century. For many decades, Ukrainians presented only a modest influence upon the neighborhood, dominated by other Eastern European cultures. But as those communities moved out, the Ukrainian presence became stronger, especially after World War II, when the United States provided visas to thousands of refugees from Europe displaced by war. Thousands of Ukrainians chose to settle here, in the vicinity of 2nd Avenue and 7th Street, thanks to a strong support system which included, in 1947, the Self-Reliance Association of American Ukrainians at 98 2nd Avenue, providing support and eventually a credit union. These new arrivals were better off and better educated than prior waves, and many opened new businesses with a distinctive Ukrainian flavor. You can find a very prominent example a few doors up from the Self-Reliance Association on the corner of 2nd Avenue and 9th Street, a restaurant named Vasilka. My grandfather, Volodymyr Domerkwal, was a Ukrainian immigrant that arrived in the States in the late 1940s. He made his way to the New York area in the early 50s, and he found that this area of the village was a very a mixed, eclectic melting pot of Germans, Irish, and this community was accepting of Ukrainian immigrants. So that's where my grandfather came and found homage. Jason Burchard is the third-generation owner and proprietor of Veselka Restaurant here in the East Village, which specializes in what they call Ukrainian soul food. What, what does that entail? Borscht, which is a meal in itself, beans, pork, carrots, potatoes, just very hearty soup. Uh, and of course, our pierogi, or what we now call vareniki in Ukrainian, we have seven or eight different fillings, and we make several thousand of them a day uh, by hand. I have a team of seven women that crank them out uh, on, a, on a daily basis. Uh, and then we have a mix of, of cabbage, blintzes, potato pancakes. I, mean, I can go on and on, but it's all comfort food. It's all handmade. Veselka has become a brunch sensation today, as well as a 24-hour restaurant. But in 1954, it would have looked quite different, reflecting a neighborhood that was, in many ways, unrecognizable today. My grandfather opened this originally as a more of like a five and dime that had borscht and you know a couple of Ukrainian classics. But he sold everything from lighters to cigarettes to newspapers oh. to whatever it took oh. to what the neighborhood demanded, and it was a much smaller space to what it is today. It might have been modest then, but Darmashwal saw the promise in his new establishment in this neighborhood, in the same way that thousands of other immigrants had seen the Lower East Side as a place of new opportunity. And that is embedded within the name itself. Veselka means rainbow in Ukrainian. Mm -hmm. I think in Czech it means celebration, uh, you know, happy wedding day in a variety of different Slovak languages. The end of a rainbow, what do you typically find? 
a pot of gold. Mm -hmm. So he was, as a Ukrainian immigrant and uh, immigrant here in the States, land of opportunity, I think he gave it that name with the uh, thought process that he would someday find a pot of gold at the end of his rainbow. <laughs> you know, it's it's proven us well over the years, and especially being here in the village, you know, it, it has many connotations. Just one year after Veselka opened, the elevated railroad on 3rd Avenue came down. Now, the L, which streaked up and down 1st Avenue, had been demolished already by the 1940s. So the 3rd Avenue was the last of all the lower Manhattan elevated trains in operation. Gleaming skyscrapers are traditional landmarks of New York. But there are other landmarks, like the grimy ribbon of steel now being dismantled that decorates Manhattan's east side. Officially, it was the 3rd Avenue Elevated Railroad, but New Yorkers just called it the L. For 76 years, L trains clattered by, carrying people to work and home again. But the old steel skeleton outlived its usefulness. Passengers dwindled. And so the L is being torn down. It was pretty important for many people in coming and going, honestly. And while it was beloved by some, its elimination spelled an end to dark shadows and soot on 3rd Avenue and over the Bowery. And also gone was this virtual wall that separated it from Greenwich Village to its west. And so the Beatniks came a calling. We'll get to the creation of the East Village after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. In 1956, two years after Veselka opened, and one year after the elevated was torn down, a small bar just south of Cooper Union, once a drinking hole for Bowery bums, began to book jazz acts. It was called the Five Spot Cafe. 
it was a dive with a maximum capacity of 75 people. But it was new and fresh and special. At a time when jazz music was thriving in Greenwich Village at places like the Village Gate, Cafe Society, and the Vanguard. And new stars were invented there. Charlie Mingus, John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, among others. All of whom eventually played the five spot. It became renowned for its music, but also its clientele. The novelist Dan Wakefield said of the venue, quote, Everybody went to the five spot. Writers, artists, musicians. I never had the sense that any Wall Street guys were at the five spot. They might have been in disguise, but it was very informal. It wasn't like a nightclub. Later I learned that it was really started by the fact that in the Bowery, a lot of painters had lofts there. Where they worked. In reality, the changes to the neighborhood began even before the train was taken down, with artists and writers attracted to that Greenwich Village scene to the west, gravitating to the east side's extremely cheap rents. For instance, Norman Mailer lived over on First Avenue and Second Street. In 1955, he and three others founded a new alternative weekly called The Village Voice. And The Voice had apartment listings, many from places on the east side. And so now, with the train gone, this all seemed like a natural extension of the village physically, and soon, even culturally. Now, at the time, the scene in the village belonged in most part to the Beats, poets and musicians who had crammed themselves into tiny basement coffee houses in the village. Abstract expressionist painters and the uptowners, out-of-towners, college students, and others who admired them. To quote from Ada Calhoun's brilliant book, St. Mark's is Dead, writing about that famous street, the 50s East Village thought of itself as opposite of the suburbs, which were then becoming popular throughout the country. Most of those who came to the street never made names for themselves as writers and artists, but they contributed as readers and audience members, friends and fans. Together, the scene's heroes and their admirers could sit all day in cafes and all night in each other's decrepit railroad apartments. Now, the following is from a newspaper column in 1954, written by the theater impresario Billy Rose. Quote, A couple miles south of my office, there is a district known as Greenwich Village, and to the tourist, it stands for long-haired artists, cellar bars, and Dixieland combos. To a fellow named James J. Kirk, however, the village is home. In particular, that section off 7th Avenue, known as West Village. This neighborhood, as Kirk knows it, is a sedate old quarter where painters, office workers, and dock wallopers live side by side, knowing little and caring little about the tourist traps around Sheridan Square, unquote. Now, the rest of that article is actually about cracking down on some marijuana smokers on the street, which is a quaint problem, it turns out, compared to the future of the East Side. Those on the west side, at home in much more architecturally sophisticated housing stock, wanted to separate themselves from the rowdy scene taking place in the vicinity of Washington Square Park. And so, colloquially, the term West Village was used by some to eventually distinguish these two areas. The landlords on the east side, meanwhile, wanted exactly the opposite of this— where homeowners on the west side successfully defended their beautiful homes from the urban renewal plans of Robert Moses, which then enshrined the name West Village in the process. Over here on the east, there was far less graceful, notable architecture to sing about. There's some, just not nearly as much. And, you know, over the decades, there were other things to worry about over here. It, it was, after all, the Lower East Side. But in the 1950s, they began calling it the East Village. The term may have been colloquial, 
then adopted by realtors looking to rebrand the neighborhood. Now, Ada Calhoun, in her book that I mentioned, traces a printed usage to the year 1956. And by 1960, the New York Times was taking note of the area as a distinct neighborhood. Quote, the elimination of the L helped stir up a minor social and realty revolution on the Lower East Side. The barrier was not simply physical, it was also psychological. Many villagers, artists, students, and others who lived in the village because rents were cheap thought of the east side as a slum area without comfort or prestige. Village guidebooks now include east side hotspots as village territory, therefore extending New York's Bohemia from river to river." The spine of this new Bohemia stretched from Astor Place along St. Mark Street, hitting Avenue A, and the entrance to Tompkins Square Park. By the mid-1960s, Ukrainian and Polish-owned cafes, booksellers, pawn shops, and butchers tolerated a new breed of young, hip tourists. Street posts where notices in Yiddish and Polish had once hung were now flanked with scrawled signs for poetry readings, avant-garde music performances, and basement art shows. Bar owner Stanley Tolkien became a bit of an accidental celebrity to the Bohemians, both at his bar Stanley's at 12th Street and Avenue B, which was a favorite of the beat poet scene, and at his St. Mark's Place establishment known as the Dom, located beneath the former Polish national home. In 1964, he told the New York Times, quote, First there were the artists, then there were teachers and writers, and little by little, we had everyone. Advertising men, doctors who lived in walk-up tenements, lawyers just starting out, construction workers, unquote. In short order, this quadrant of the Lower East Side had very unpredictably become a destination for the young and creative. But people weren't coming to the East Village for conformity, but for escape, for, quote, a scene. Even if the deteriorating condition of the neighborhood wasn't exactly conducive for such stoned, eye-opening wandering. For a time, it became an incredibly creative place during a time when the rents were still very cheap. And the East Village was still a destination for jazz. In 1964, Slug's Saloon at 3rd Street between Avenues B and C became a sawdust-floored destination for avant-garde jazz music. It was here that you could see performances by Ornette Coleman, Sonny Rollins, and most famously on Monday nights, Sun Ra. We take a trip to space, the next stop Mars. We take a trip to space, the next stop Mars. We take a trip to space. The next stop, Mars. Mostly, however, the new arrivals were mostly defined by a shift in New York Bohemia from beatniks to hippies. Flamboyant and politically active, influenced by the events of the 1960s and a slightly different buffet of drugs. It was hard to keep out the realities of the real world. The Vietnam War or the struggle for civil rights or just the increasingly fraught conditions of New York City itself. In 1964, the musician and artist Ed Sanders opened the Peace Eye Bookstore in a former kosher meat market at 383 East 10th Street, famous for its free mimeograph press, the voice of the neighborhood, producing flyers, manifestos, poetry books, whatever you wanted, he let you do it. It was also here that Sanders frequently performed with his own band, and the soundtrack of the East Village countercultural movement, a band called by the FBI, because they had a file, quote, the most vulgar thing the human mind could possibly conceive. They were known as the Fugs. Let us be true. Let us be true. The world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams. 
One year later, in October of 1965, the East Village got its own weekly newspaper called the East Village Other. Its first front page article documenting an anti-war rally at Avenue B and 9th Street. And according to reporting, it was a rather chaotic event. Quote, The opportunity was seized by a variety of groups, ranging from black Muslims to progressive labor who passed out handbills and newspapers. Fifteen policemen were on hand to keep at bay a group of fraternity boys sporting buttons and signs that read, William Buckley for mayor, American patriots for freedom, and down with the red traitors. Astor Place and Old Cooper Union became the symbolic gateway to the East Village in 1967 with the installation of Alamo, a steel-swiveling black cube sculpture designed by Tony Rosenthal. It was an artistic center. In fact, north of this cube, art supply stores flourished along 3rd and 4th Avenues. Although, in truth, many places predate the arrival of artist bohemians, places that were situated to serve the students of Cooper Union and NYU. Now, most of these independent art stores are gone today, replaced with chain stores. But in their heyday, you could find the greatest painters in the world shopping in one of these supply stores. There was no truer sign of East Village being an art capital than the arrival of Andy Warhol. He designed the flower banners for Ed Sanders' Peace Bookstore. And then in 1966, he took over the Polish National Home upstairs from Stanley Token's bar, The Dom, and then turned its mid-19th century ballroom into a nightclub experience called the Exploding Plastic Inevitable with mind-blowing light shows and a soundtrack from the house band The Velvet Underground. Later, when Warhol moved out, it remained a nightclub, and its new name was the Electric Circus. Looking back on her experiences here in the East Village, the West African poet Rashida Ismali wrote, quote, In the 1960s, there was war and chaos and simultaneously hope. Here in the cramped apartments and cold water studios, the essence of life and the role of art and artists were discussed fought over by black-and-white artists with an air of seriousness, perhaps encouraged by the questioning and revolt, believing change for the better was imminent, African-American artists came together to begin the job of articulating the stories of their people. Unquote. In 1962, a literary group known as Umbra formed in the East Village, uniting black writers and producing an influential literary magazine. The home of Leroy and Hattie Jones at 27 Cooper Square became the de facto downtown headquarters for what became known as the Black Arts Movement. Downstairs from the Joneses lived the saxophonist Artie Shep, as Hattie Jones later wrote, quote, The acoustics of Cooper Square augmented every music. If it was warm weather when Archie's group played, They'd open his studio windows and let the sound ricochet off the factories and repeat a millisecond later on the tenement wall on 5th Street. The five spot was also only a stone's throw away. Increasingly, the racial balance in our house shifted as a black avant-garde, writers, musicians, painters, dancers, became part of the new East Village, just at that time coming into that name. Unquote. But the greatest legacy of 1960s East Village might be its influence on American theater. A half century after the height of the Yiddish theater scene on 2nd Avenue, the neighborhood was again bursting with stage innovation. In 1961, Ellen Stewart opened Café La Mama on East 4th Street 
a stage for experimental theater, which over the decades would launch the careers of the world's greatest actors, writers, and directors. In 1963, at the Stuyvesant family's old church, St. Mark's in the Bowery, the newly hired progressive rector Michael Allen threw the doors of his historic church open to the community. The following year, the playwrights group Theater Genesis brought experimental theater to the basement of St. Mark's, literally feet away from the remains of Peter Stuyvesant. And it was here, in this rather odd spot, that the playwright Sam Shepard got his start. But perhaps the best known of all the East Village theaters was a place on Lafayette Street, just 50 feet south of the Astor Place Cube. A theater, or rather a set of theaters today, housed within an old 19th century library. A few days ago, I met theater historian David Lowy in the mezzanine of the public theater, overlooking the mix of classic and modern architectural features that Lowy himself had a hand in renovating. Joe Papp was born as Yussel Paparovsky in 1921. He was the son of uh, Eastern European immigrants. There was a lot of Yiddish in his neighborhood and his household, but he was not one of the Jews growing up on the Lower East Side. He was growing up in Williamsburg and subsequently Brownsville. Very working class, very multicultural, not an exclusively Jewish neighborhood. He didn't quite have the sort of like working class Jewish upbringing that you picture from that same era. He His was much more sort of hard scrabble. And, and honestly, he spent most of his life sort of still very much viewing himself that way. And it would end up shaping a lot of his art. He would end up being very serious about, you know, art for art's sake is nothing. Art for life's sake is everything. Uh, and so that's that's a lot of what he was about. It was this perspective that first shaded Pap's opinions of William Shakespeare. He would actually see Gilgood's Hamlet, and that's what sparked his disdain for highfalutin Shakespeare. He thought it was much too flowery and uh, and not connected enough to the audience and to the text. He wanted a people's Shakespeare theater that reached everybody, that wasn't just for the rich and just for those who could, you know, afford a Broadway ticket. And he really wanted everyone to sort of own the culture that was, in his mind, their birthright, to just enjoy. And so in 1952, he posted an ad for what he was calling the Shakespeare Workshop, and he invited all kinds of folks and, you know, a young Colleen Dewhurst would show up. Roscoe Lee Brown would show up. And, you know, it started with a workshop production of Romeo and Juliet. But they were working out of, and this is where his his East Village bona fides start, they were working out of the Emanuel Presbyterian Church on East 6th Street. They had a basement theater. It was one of those sort of like social hall kind of things. And they were producing a cultural program there that everyone could come to. In 1956, Papp would stage Julius Caesar at an amphitheater in East River Park. There's all these great stories about how while they're rehearsing in the park and building sets, the neighborhood just kind of showed up to watch rehearsals. They were sort of intrigued by it. It became very much owned by them in a, in a certain way, which Joe was very proud of. So that by the time opening night happened and the limos are showing up on, you know, the East River, and suddenly all these high-toned folks are there. They are sitting immediately next to the folks who have been watching them rehearse and been sort of part of the action. They would end up, you know, hiring the neighborhood kids who were just sort of hanging their arms over the wall while and watching things. There was a, apparently a specific set of twins who were particularly wrapped, and they're like, do you want a job? And they hired them. But it already became a community affair. He had such a good time doing it, he decided to go to the Parks Department and say, this went real well. We would like to do a tour. The Shakespeare Festival's mobile unit would bring the Bard to all five boroughs. Most famously, of course, to Central Park, where after some high-profile run-ins with Parks Commissioner Robert Moses, Papp and his Shakespeare company made Central Park their permanent home for free theater— at the Delacorte Theater, built in 1961. 
But soon Joe Papp was dreaming of more experimental fare and eventually set his sights back down in the East Village to a building that was about to be demolished, the Grand Astor Library, which had been constructed way back in 1854 by New York's real estate titan, John Jacob Astor. A hundred years later, with the library long gone, the old crumbling building was put on the chopping block. And now we return to our hero, Joseph Papp, because he hears about the old library getting knocked down and says, that can't happen. And he begins to lobby the city and the brand new, just formed Landmarks Commission and says, clearly you can't let them do this. And so in 1965, when the Landmarks Commission holds its first meeting, there is a slate of buildings that are going to be first for consideration. And 425 Lafayette Street is on there, which means the developer can't move forward because once a building is under consideration, you can't you can't alter it. Joe Papp uses that leverage to get them to sell the building, the developer who has bought the building, to sell the building to him. And suddenly he's got this gigantic building that he needs to do something with. And that's how he gets a downtown home. But he's getting this massive space in 1965, as everything that I've just described so far is a swirl around it. He suddenly had too much real estate, and he didn't necessarily know what to do with it. When the New York Shakespeare Festival first opened the doors of this building, it was actually essentially a multi-arts complex. The Anthology Film Archives had its first location here. There was a grassroots photography program that was being run out of the basement. There was the Cinque Gallery. It was one of the first all-black art galleries in New York City. So all of these folks had place here in this new building, and Joe did what he does. He started, you know, clearing out spaces and experimenting with theater. But what could Pap's theater, what could it do as a follow-up to Shakespeare? The solution came from the very counterculture that Pap now found himself in the midst of. And he didn't actually know what the first performance was going to be. Uh, At the time, he was teaching up at Yale and was on the Metro North train back down to the city when a fantastic dirty hippie who uh, knew who he was handed him a sheaf of papers that was, you know, this musical he was working on. And that was James Rado of Rado and Ragney. And Joe handed that sheaf of papers to his literary manager and soon-to-be wife, Gail Merrifield. And he, and he said, I don't know what I'm looking at. It's just the same word over and over again. Hair, 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 hair. And she said, well, let me read the whole thing and we'll see if we can't get them to shape it up. And it would become the musical Hair. And it has its premiere in 1967 in what is the Ansbacher Theater. And it changed everything. It was one of the first uh, moments of immersive theater that was happening on a major stage because the hippies were in the audience with the audience and singing to them and messing with them. It was taking contemporary issues and the disaffection of the youth culture and putting it on stage. It talked about the war directly. It talked about drug use and its sort of justifications amongst youth culture in a very direct way. And it was wildly hated by the critics and loved by the public. And because he had moved his organization, the New York Shakespeare Festival, into this former public library, he called it the Public Theater, which is actually technically the name of the building, not the name of the organization. Hair premiered to the public on October 17, 1967, played for several weeks before being revised by Tom O'Horgan, a director from Ellen Stewart's La Mama Experimental Theater, and then debuting on Broadway in 1968. I think the, the review at the time, probably John Simon, said it was as if they swept the riffraff off the street and onto the stage. I think it was part of the appeal for Joe Papp in that he saw the opportunity to, again, reflect the community on its stage immediately. When the moon is in the seventh house And Jupiter aligns with Mars Then peace will guide the planets And love 
After the commercial break, the East Village enters the 1970s and the high begins to wear off. By the late 1960s, the East Village was definitely what you might call a hippie enclave. And now it had the cultural clout to prove it. In March of 1968, San Francisco rock promoter Bill Graham, who had grown up in New York as a child, opened Fillmore East on 2nd Avenue and East 6th Street, just three blocks down from Veselka in a former Yiddish theater. It became known as the Church of Rock and Roll, a pinnacle institution for American music at this time, with performers such as Jimi Hendrix, The Grateful Dead, Frank Zappa, Led Zeppelin, and Jefferson Airplane. On certain nights of the week, the blocks between Fillmore East and Veselka were crammed with young people. An almost visible haze of pot hovering over the Jim Spa candy store at 2nd Avenue and St. Mark's Place. A place which became a sort of nucleus for this scene. And it became even more bewildering as you headed east toward Tompkins Square Park, which had become an eastern wing of sorts to Washington Square Park, at least in terms of its prominence as a place of protest. But while the Greenwich Village Park was often and quite famously policed, Tompkins Square at this time was often left unbothered by law enforcement, and the shady paths and plazas were often occupied with drug-filled dance parties, be-ins, political protests, and impromptu music festivals. In 1967, situations came to a head in the park when noise complaints led to a clash between neighbors, hippies, and police. By the late 1960s, the population of the East Village was different from what it had been just a decade before. Starting in the 1950s, thousands of Puerto Ricans migrated to New York, settling in a few neighborhoods in New York City, including the Lower East Side, right as it was being vacated by many Eastern European immigrants. Now, for more information, we have an entire show from last year on Puerto Rican migration to New York. That's episode 384. By the 1960s, the population of Puerto Ricans and African Americans rose in the East Village due in no small part to so-called slum clearance projects in other parts of the city. In particular, the area of San Juan Hill, the black and Hispanic neighborhood that was demolished to make way for Lincoln Center. So many working class who lived there moved here during this moment when the neighborhood is more or less being destabilized by so many clashing cultures and by rising rents for inadequate housing. From a 1967 ABC News report interviewing residents about the growing crisis. How do you feel about the hippies? Good ones, you, you don't know who they are either. That's why you can't judge them all. But the thing is that since I was living here, I moved out because I figured it's not good for my kids and it's not good for myself either. Because, you know, I used to drive a cab, now I'm driving a truck. And I used to come home late. You don't find there's an incompatibility between the people who have to live here and those of you who choose to? What do you mean an incompatibility? How do you get along with the people who've been here a while? I don't know. I got a lot of friends down here. Groovy had a lot of friends down here. I mean, like, friends are where you find them. You know, like to have a friend, you got to be a friend, right? How much of a part does uh, the LSD turn-on scene have to do with violence of this nature? I don't think it has anything to do with it. Absolutely nothing. Not acid. What's behind violence like this? I don't know. Everybody's so hostile against each other, maybe. Everybody's what? Hostile. Against each other. Nobody likes each other. Like the hippies don't like Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans don't like blacks. Is there a lot of hostility, resentment? Yeah, plenty of it. The Russian artist Yuri Kaprilov wrote of his life living on Avenue B, near the park in the late 1960s. Quote, By now our block had changed considerably. The great hippie invasion was in full swing. They came in by the thousands. They camped in almost every hallway. 
And with them came the reporters and the photographers and the camera crews and the motorcycle gangs and the revolutionaries and the plain idiots, unquote. The year 1968 saw riots in the park between youth and police. There were burning cars, dozens of injuries, and a further shroud of danger that drove many to move away from here. Kaprilov writes, quote, On 11th Street, between avenues B and C, our block is known as Little Nam, although I've been told by a few friends who returned from Nam that they felt much safer over there. On this street, the summer comes early and stays forever. The 1970s were, in most ways, a troubling time for those who lived and worked in the East Village. Part of this had to do with the hippie movement itself, which would fade away, the rise of heroin usage in the neighborhood, and most importantly, and ominously, the city's quickly deteriorating financial fortunes. But there were specific events which seemed to close the book on this particular moment in time. On March 22, 1970, a bomb went off on the dance floor of the Electric Circus, which injured 15 people. Meanwhile, rock and roll artists preferred new concert venues, bigger ones such as Madison Square Garden, to the small places like Fillmore East, which eventually closed on June 27, 1971, with an unusual roster, which included the Allman Brothers and the Beach Boys. A few months later, the Electric Circus also closed for good. And in the early morning hours of February 19, 1972, the jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan, performing at Slug's Saloon, was shot and killed by his common-law wife. Slug's Saloon closed for good just a few months later. Over at Veselka, Jason's father, Tom Burchard, who had taken over operation of the restaurant, was having his own set of problems. The city had torn down all these elevated trains with the understanding that they were going to build a new subway line for the east side under 2nd Avenue and right along the front of Veselka. You know, there were many times where he thought it wouldn't get through the day or the week or the month and the, the construction of the Second Avenue subway, he told me, was horrific. You know, the the dirt and the, literally stepping outside the doorway of the restaurant would, you know, it was a, a three foot sidewalk space, and then you were in a big hole. And then we didn't even get it. And then we didn't even get it. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you know, they got it uptown. Yeah, yeah. I know. But uh, it was it was trying times. Thanks to the city's financial crisis, however, the Second Avenue subway construction was shut down in 1975. And that hole in the ground covered up. But Jason attributes the business's success to a surprising new menu item. Believe it or not, he believes that the addition of the New York lottery, we were one of the first uh, able to receive a license to sell lottery tickets. That wow. was kind of a, a, a yeah, kind of a, a grace in disguise, mm-hmm. meaning that you know we were very fortunate and that helped us get us over the hump of the down periods. The East Village's Puerto Rican population naturally plummeted in the 1970s, and those that had to stay turned to their own community resources for assistance when none could be found from the city. Places like churches and activists who in turn inspired new creative outlets in the neighborhood for Puerto Rican artists and poets. By 1974, the Puerto Rican playwright Bimbo Rivas would coin a new name for this neighborhood— replacing the one that seemed to be a mark of high rents and gentrification and replacing it with one that harkened back to the original name, Loisida. The Electric Circus was gone. Fillmore East was gone. The Five Spot and Slugs were gone. The Peaside Bookstore was gone. The old East Village was gone. But you never know where or when the next big scene is going to erupt from. Maybe from an unsuccessful little bar on the Bowery, owned by Hilly Crystal, a bar which reinvented itself in December of 1973 under the name Country Bluegrass Blues and Other Music for Uplifting Gormandizers. It would become better known as CBGBs. But that's a story 
for another show. We'll continue that story in the next episode. But what's pretty interesting is that while almost all of the hippie hangouts closed in the 1970s, the Ukrainian East Village, today called Just Ukrainian Village or Little Ukraine, well, this place held on, keeping traditions alive along 2nd Avenue and the side streets. And in some cases, Little Ukraine actually thrived. The new St. George Ukrainian Catholic Church was completed in 1978, and the small street adjacent to the church was renamed Taras Shevanko Place for the 19th century Ukrainian poet. In 1976, the Ukrainian National Women's League of America opened a museum to Ukrainian culture on 2nd Avenue. In 2005, the Ukrainian museum moved to its present location just a few doors down from St. George's. Because most Americans know very little about Ukraine, this neighborhood sometimes stands in as the voice of the entire Ukrainian-American population, which numbers a bit over one million people across the country. In 1986, during the Chernobyl nuclear disaster, vigils were held at St. George's and residents waited anxiously for news of their families back home. Said one resident, quote, Our whole community is depressed. Another added, Ukrainians have been oppressed by Russians for 300 years. This is just adding another pain to our history. National attention turned again to this little corner of the East Village on February 24th, 2022, when Russia invaded Ukraine, a continuation of hostilities which begin back in 2014. And when it happened uh, initially on that fateful day, February 24th, mm-hmm. it was a very tragic day and I was very depressed, speechless. Majority of my staff uh, are, are of Ukrainian descent were in shock, but at the same token, wanted to be at work with their co-workers uh, of Ukrainian descent, as well as they were amazed by the amount of support and knowledge of our local community, as well as national community. As Ukrainians know, and and I think anybody who asked, you know, we're a very resilient, strong-willed people who believe in their freedom and will do anything to fight mm-hmm. for that. So... It's, it's been a whirlwind. I mean, I, I didn't expect the amount of tension that was given to us, but appreciate everybody who's come and expressed their comfort and loyalty. And, and by eating, I think they do say that comfort food soothes the soul and mm-hmm. it brings people together. So what better place than Veselka? Veselka has raised over $350,000 in its relief efforts. Now, for more information on how you can contribute to their Stand with Ukraine program, visit their website, Veselka, that's V-E-S-E-L-K-A dot com. I want to thank Jason Burchard from Veselka and theater historian David Lowy for joining me on the show today. Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for some of my own images of the neighborhood and some historical photographs, which may cause a sting of nostalgia for many of you. I'll also have a Spotify playlist, which features some of the historic music featured in this show and a lot of other goodies if you just want to get into a groovy mood. Now, for those who support the Bowery Boys on Patreon.com, You'll hear my entire conversation with David Lowy, more about Joe Papp and Shakespeare and the public theater. That show released just for patrons as an episode of Side Streets. You can get that show by joining us over at patreon.com slash Boys. And if you want to hear more of me and Tom at the public, well, guess what? You are in luck. And I swear... I swear, this is completely coincidental. I did not plan this. I didn't even look at the calendar. But tickets for our annual Ghost Stories of Old New York live show at Joe's Pub at the Public Theater have just gone on sale. I mean, why do you think we love performing there? We are feet away. I don't know how many feet, but some short distance away from where the musical hair premiered. 
This year we have three shows, three times that you can catch our ghost stories this year, 2023, October 27th, the 30th, and of course, Halloween. To get your tickets, head over to thepublictheater.org. Now, hopefully you've listened to last week's Rewind episode on the history of Tompkins Square Park because, well, it ties directly into this episode, as you heard, and also into the next episode, which will explore the history of the East Village after 1975, but in a more immersive way. And I'll let you imagine what that might possibly mean. I'll be here in two weeks with that episode. Now, portions of the show were edited by Kieran Gannon and engineered by Casey Holford at Stitcher Studios. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.